Welcome to a new episode of the Skeptically Inclined Science Podcast. I'm your co-host Evan. And I'm Tom. How are you guys? Uh, and welcome wherever you are. Hope you're having a lovely day. Uh, on today's episode, Tom, what are you going to talk about? Uh, a, rare sp- a rare spinal cord inflammation linked to COVID-19. And later on, I will talk about evolutionary adaptation to infectious diseases. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Is this in relation right. to kind of COVID or? No, I just I just like that topic, so I thought, and I kind of uh, in between preparation for two presentations and such, and I was like, okay, I know a little bit about that, so it's gonna be a little bit easier for me to build the case around it, yeah. rather than trying to re, uh, kind of look for something completely new. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah. yeah, and today I am going to just talk about. Uh, vaccination of COVID-19 in kids um, and kind of give a talk kind of from both sides about um, whether it's a good idea to vaccinate kids for COVID-19 or not. I think there's been a bit of a recent discussion. I think Joe Rogan mentioned it recently on his podcast. So I thought, why not just dive straight into this controversy and see what what we find. So yeah, I wonder if you're gonna agree with him yeah uh well yeah well i'll try and be impartial um (laughs) yeah and i yeah i've always and uh yeah i'll i i think for my news we can go into that when i get there um (laughs) (laughs) very mysterious today (laughs) yeah yeah so um yeah so before we go into your news headlines how are you tom how are you getting Mm -hmm. on how are you fine uh, um yeah just just fine yeah, it's just a bit busy. I have these presentations coming up this week, so I want to finish them. And today I discovered why I was so stuck on one aspect of my experiment. I was trying. I'm trying to do this mutagenesis, and I was uh, and I was looking at my primers today as part of my presentation because there is like a troubleshooting part to it. And I discovered why my mutagenesis doesn't work. It's because the primers uh, they don't have the the right sequence to introduce the mutation. So oh I was my like, God. How did you manage up? to do that? Like seriously, oh, such I, I don't a know. basic mistake. I should have, I should have blasted it. And then I would see that there is a mismatch Blast and then I would shit. know, but, um, yeah, too bad. But at least I know what went wrong, but now I have to admit in front of everyone during my presentation that my mutagenesis doesn't work because of the primers. And it yeah. was supposed to be like a nice Q and a section when they, we can like troubleshoot why it doesn't work and now i'm just gonna be like well it doesn't work because okay so uh, yeah moment of learning or uh, yeah took me some time yeah how about you yeah good um i was i think i told you i got a recent co-author on a paper that i helped uh write it was a literature congratulations literature review um so that was good i uh didn't get I didn't expect anything to come of it, so I can add my it, my name to my search engine in PubMed. So, <laughs> that's I, all do that you like meant. doing that? Uh, no. Well, sometimes I do. I remember yeah, when I was. Too. I remember when I was like, look, someone was talking to me about some guy who was saying a lot of anti-COVID, anti-vaccine things, and I searched his name in PubMed, and he didn't come up. And I was like, even I have like stuff on PubMed, like so. <laughs> Like, it's not that hard. So this guy, how can you oh, really, legit, okay. can you take him? 
if you're uh, not on PubMed, yeah, you exactly. Do you yeah. even live? Yeah. <laughs> but do you do you not have like sometimes when you like wake up with a little bit of a bad mood or something like that, and you just <laughs> like go on the PubMed, type in your ma- your name, and this just kind of makes you feel better that something pops uh, up. You no, don't have that. I'm not no, that okay. sad. I am a big <laughs> nerd, but I don't think I've gotten that uh, nerdy just yet. Okay. But even though I have, maybe maybe this could be even more sadder. But like. Uh, I wanted to share the paper on LinkedIn, um, but I, then I realized I don't. I'm not friends with the co the the first author on the paper <laughs> who I did it with. So I was like, okay, well I can't share the paper first. So I wait till I'm friends with her, and then I can tag her in the sh- in the post rather than just be like not tag her in it because I'm not sh- the first author. Yeah. So I thought I was like it looked bad. <laughs> bad. <laughs> did she did she accept you i haven't actually really been looking i because i really wanted to share it straight away i was like i have to wait for her to accept the reply and i'm sure she's really busy and oh yeah (laughs) so what does he want now (laughs) yeah so first world problems waiting this is like um like you know how some people like collaborate with big uh with you know um instagrammers and stuff like this is me collaborating with a science person like this is the the nerdy side of like nerdy instagram in a way yeah. like um, yeah so yeah well, I, just was, I just thought it was funny that uh no it is that's how we <laughs> if you don't have it tagged somewhere and shared somewhere does it really published even in the science world we don't uh, we're not we can't excuse or we're not above publicizing no. ourselves and flattering ourselves in any way possible so well, you know, it's gonna be at, at some point you'll be citing your own work yeah. in your in your publications. So, like, you know, you yeah. just pat you yourself have to on your yourself. back. Yeah, you have to. You have to, <laughs> you have to increase that citation count. Uh, and uh, oh yeah, and I hopefully will have my project finally submitted and done, and I hopefully can graduate soon in um, in October in September. Yeah, so ho- I'm hoping to go back to Netherlands and get to hopefully things that might be reopened a bit more and I can finally just see a bit more well yeah. I won't get to do a huge amount more I like to go to Amsterdam again and uh, see it yeah um, do you know where you're gonna stay I don't know yet we'll see <laughs> when I have yeah, to, I might have a, a friend or two to right sound so I can I, stay in. Uh, I think they have a double bed that I can stay in you can stay over it's no problem anytime and I might be vaccinated by the time you arrive so uh, yeah that could hopefully. be nice yeah cool okay um so thanks for the update um mm-hmm. do you want to go into your uh sure news story i can uh, i can uh i can bring the heavy hammer <laughs> give enlighten us yes so i was um i was going through internet looking for something interesting uh so obviously all i kind of all of the news that we show they kind of bias right because we are looking for like the exciting stuff rather than like but still i found this yeah i found this article about rare spinal cord inflammation linked to COVID 19 and i thought to myself okay that's fine that's interesting and so they already diagnosed this uh, spinal cord inflammation and they think it's acute transverse melitis um, and this disease is typically reported the 1.3 to 4.6 incidents per million people. So like super rare. Um, but during COVID-19, researchers and doctors have noticed rise in numbers of this disease. And across 21 different countries, 
43 uh, COVID patients were reported to have um, ATM. And uh, inter interestingly, um, the researchers describe it as unexpectedly frequent. And on top of this, the researchers found three cases of acute transverse melitis among the, among the participants in the Ox Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine clinical trial. Um, so now this, this ATM was detected in three people and it was classified as an adverse event during the trials of AstraZeneca. And the scientists says, uh, say this neurological injury results from the affinity of the SARS-CoV-2 virus for the angiotensin converting enzyme 2 receptor, which is its target. But this particular receptor is uh, present in neurons and glial cells um, in, and that's why it allows this virus to, to, to invade, invade this, uh, this spinal cord and create inflammation in there because it finds the receptors. Uh, so uh, from, this, uh, from this discovery, from the cohort of people, the, the age ranged from 21 to 73. So it wasn't really like age specific or anything like that. And with the majority of cases in people above 44, and they also said that uh, conditions affected both sexes. So it wasn't like, uh, uh, wasn't in favor of any. The inflammation kind of resembles uh, the MS inflammation because it's again, it's the, uh, it's the neurons yeah. and the myelin sheet. It's just- um, Fourth episode in a row you're mentioning myelin sheet. Yeah, I know, it's <laughs> mad. <laughs> Get it's, a room um, already. <laughs> <laughs> and the kind of the symptoms of it are similar to MS, uh, you know, weakness, numbness of the limbs, uh, deficit in sensation and motor skills, and so on and so on. Uh, usually, 60%, in 60% of these cases, in 60% of cases of ATP is, is idiopathic, so they don't really know what causes it. Uh, obviously, in here, they uh, they are linking this uh, this disease with the uh, with the onset of COVID nineteen, uh, but you know, is it sure. actually caused by COVID nineteen? Is is not yet known. You know, like the mm. um, it still has to be deciphered. Um, so yeah, they they kind of sums up saying that pathophysiology is not very well uh, known, other than it causes progressive loss of the fatty uh, myelin sheet around the neurons. So, uh, so that's really, um, that's really it. But is it uh, it's all, super rare though, then? On, on its own is super rare, but they, um, it is more common among people who have COVID, COVID patients. Yeah. Well, 43 COVID patients. So like, that's still, yeah, that's still like, rare. Whereabouts in America was it? Or? Well, that was across 21 different countries. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's yeah. super rare. Um, yeah. But um, it's hard to know. Yeah, it's that hard was to, definitely com, com, caused by it. Yeah, like I, you know, because my, my brother got COVID, and he, what? Uh, yeah, oh, my, you told me, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, my brother got COVID, but he got in. He had to be admitted to hospital, but what, he had to get his appendix out. So, oh. and we were like, was COVID caused the appendix to come out? Get his his appendix to need to be taken out or was mm. it just a, a coincidence that his appendix needed to be out and he had COVID mm. and I really think it's at the latter because I just think is it well like it could have contributed it but I think 
maybe it just tipped the immune system over the edge and rather than directly mm. causing it so i don't know um, it's uh this yeah this discussion is very similar to the one when they um when they you know when they say the COVID deaths it's like someone died of something it had yeah. COVID and they just okay so this is like COVID related death you know it's kind of similar like if mm. uh, is it actually COVID or does it just so happens that something else takes place alongside COVID and in, COVID infection yeah but it's interesting you mentioned that actually because that was a news that I had seen um they were saying that real global deaths from COVID-19 are twice official figures. And um, they said in America that the, the they estimated the true US debt toll was just over 900,000 people compared with an official figure of 574,000 people. Uh, and they predicted further 44,000 US deaths by September, which is crazy to think they think there's this uh sorry i should clarify it was the institute for health metrics and evaluation at the university of washington who did this mm. uh estimation so they think forty-four thousand more people will die in the u.s but only 750 will die in the uk because it has a much lower rate of vaccine refusal so it's crazy to think that even though the vac mm. the the vaccine rates at the moment seem very comparable and the US is like killing it in the vaccination rates. They still think 44,000 more people will die in the US, it, which is crazy. Vaccine, vaccine hesitation, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I just thought that was crazy. But you know, similar similar thing is now happening in Poland. There's uh, like the people who initially wanted to get vaccinated they did get vaccines and now if you like follow some um polish influencers and stuff on instagram they keep posting up on their stories that this these and these places have free vaccines and people should call in or register to re not free vaccines they have like extra excess. vaccines yeah excess so people should like call them or register to go and get these vaccines because otherwise it's going gonna be wasted and they reckon it's all because it's the vaccine hesi hesitant hesitant people that are left now because everyone mm. who wanted to get vaccine more or less has got it already yeah yeah so and then now people just are you know they don't want to do it anymore so uh, yeah that's uh but like yeah it's crazy to think that just because some people are like it, it's available they have no reason yeah. not to get it and they still won't and then it's going to lead to forty-four thousand people dying they said that deaths from non-covid causes declined but would that would be expected because fewer accidents during lockdowns fewer deaths from other viruses mm. and fewer deaths from age-related causes such as heart disease since some frail elderly people who would have died from these causes were killed instead by covid19 so this is what you were saying, like, oh, they were going to die anyways. So should you I really wasn't saying that. <laughs> you were thinking it. I was thinking that. Um, yeah. And the other story, the other story I what thought was interesting in the science world was, um, uh, this is a big reason they, a lot of people are very skeptical of Bill Gates is the whole uh, patent, the patent on the manufacturing of the vaccines. So he mm -hmm. recommends, I think he's true, I think he's correct in that he thinks a patent should remain on the vaccines because if you really leave it open license, um, it can lead to, if there's any like 
dodginess with how it's manufactured or like steps are cut in the quality could have significant impacts and of course with the vaccine hesitancy as it is you don't want to undermine that at all Mm. Uh, i suppose men you have to counteract that with like okay but then you're getting so many more people how many more lives could you save so i suppose it is a kind of a bit of discussion but i won't go into that too much anyways but um, it's crazy. In the US, the government announced that it supports waiving patent protections for COVID-19 measures, uh, a measure aimed at boosting supplies so people around the world can get the shot. So this is kind of crazy to think that the US government, like the biggest country in the world, is actually endorsing this. Um, so you would think that they uh, they would know what they're doing. So And they, they want to obviously help um, get people vaccinated so uh, yeah usually until now the US, the EU, the UK and Japan have blocked efforts by India and South Africa to make it legal to manufacture yeah. generic version, generic versions of COVID-19 vaccines but now they have decided to, to um, allow or endorse that it should be a generic vaccine should be allowed. Well something something has to be done something has to be done to help especially india aren't they like in super super deep hall if it comes to the covid 19 infections and stuff yeah so i think that in certain certain countries like that where it's just horrendous to help them at the at the moment that it really doesn't matter where the vaccine is coming out of it would just help save so many lives and help people um, yeah, so like it says that fewer than 1% of people in low-income con- countries have received COVID-19 vaccines. Um, the researchers are quick to know, however, that a waiver on patents covering all aspects of COVID-19 will be just the first step in ramping up vaccine supply. So that's another thing is like if you allow generic vaccine production to be al- allowed, by the time they could ramp up production, like there could be huge amounts of excess vaccine available that people country other like west wealthy western countries could just donate anyway so it's it's like would it really benefit them in the long term um, yeah but do you also do you also want to wait for the wealthy country to decide that they have actually access now yeah yeah that's true because you kind of you kind of leave yourself on the mercy of others you know mm. if you I mean, I'm sure nobody like, would be like, if, oh, we, we're not going to give you these vaccines. But at the same time, you kind of have to wait and kind just patiently wait until some country or some organization decides to like, okay, it's your time, guys. There, here it goes. Mm. It kind of mean. Yeah, I suppose. And the other thing, the drug makers and others who oppose the measure say that waivers sabotage companies' enormous investments in drug and vaccine development, which are compensated by their ability to set the price on products they exclusively own. But I still think that doesn't justify no. not sharing or allowing it to be prevented, uh, produced at a lot less costly um, rate, um, especially Look, in countries is... like in India. It's not really an excuse. So Yeah. Okay uh yeah so that was our news headlines um so yeah we'll just go into our main stories then uh well i can start again with uh i can start this episode uh, as well if you want to leave your controversial topic okay. in the last yeah we keep people uh on the edge of their seats keep them on the edges yeah 
Uh, okay, so my main topic is evolutionary adaptation to infectious diseases. And um, I already said why I picked that topic, but um, I, I was also, I remember when I had my lectures in the, um, in the human genetics in my masters and this topic of evolution and actually adaptation to the infectious diseases come up and you already know at, at, at that stage I already knew a little bit about you know the way um, um, people living around the Mediterranean Sea or in Africa have some sort of resistance towards malaria of, of, of which I will be talking today as well but like not until that lecture in in my masters I got like a full-out explanation of what's going on and I thought like, wow, that is like the evolution and this stuff is so, so fascinating. The one, the one I do remember when we did it was um, like why uh, cystic fibrosis is so more common in Ireland because if you're a carrier of the gene, isn't it, you're uh, less susceptible to cholera or like exactly. less, yeah, less susceptible to the, the, the diuretic Thing. to lose what you don't lose as much. Um, yeah. Become as so you actually you actually be able to proof check me because it seems like you remember a lot about that because <laughs> I I will talk to, today I will talk about actually malaria and how sickle cell disease and uh, ta and thalassemia and mutation in the Duffy antigen on the red blood cells prevent from getting a severe malaria infection so that's one example and my other example is actually um, cystic fibrosis and resistance to cholera so, oh, uh, wow, that was good. Uh, yeah. yeah, so I... Um, Great minds. You can proof check me on this one. Well, I, uh, I, I, you'll definitely know more than me, but I just thought that was really interesting in that um, why why uh, it kind of gives you a com uh, an advantage. So I'm curious <laughs> to learn the details. <laughs> yeah, so I thought <laughs> what? I thought maybe uh, maybe some people are not familiar with what evolution is, but I'm... Just for someone who is still not so sure about evolution, it's basic. It's the uh, it's the change in the characteristic of a species over several generation and relies on the process of natural selection. So other other words, the survival of the fittest. And um, you know the theory of evolution is based on the idea that all species are related and gradually change over time. And I think this is something poetic about it as well, right? That we are all somehow interconnected uh, millions of eons of generations back, coming, mm. com all coming back from the single, single archaic bacteria. Yeah. So you're saying uh, is, uh, you, so you're saying that Adam and Eve wasn't true? <laughs> all I'm saying is that <sighs> it could have been more than one Adam and more than one Eve. And then they adapted, evolved. Yeah, and they're then once they got them. kicked out of the garden, they had to evolve to survive. <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when you misbehave in someone yeah. else's back garden. You know what I mean? Do you know yeah. what I mean? When it's summer kicks in, the barbecues, and you get too <laughs> drunk, they just kick you out. <laughs> you eat what you're not supposed to eat. Yeah. Um, yeah but what but was I, it? I, the, the other thing I was going to mention quickly before is like yeah. we in the north they have a the DUP. It's like the Unionist Party. He they got elected a new leader, and he like this is a, a leader of a political party. He thinks the world is only four thousand years old, and he doesn't oh, believe he's in it. He's a creationist, yeah, or, or something it's like that. Oh. Like. That's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> that people elected someone like that. Maybe he doesn't well, bring his beliefs to work. 
I doubt. I think he very much does. Okay. Anyways, yeah. Well, so there's these people out there. So maybe we can target that group with this knowledge. <laughs> sure. Um, so actually, I was reading about the evolution, and it, it, you can actually classify different types of evolutionary processes that happened. And um, I think the most popular way to do it is there are three types is the convergent evolution divergent and parallel evolution and uh, just to put some light on it the convergent evolution takes place when species of a different ancestry begin to share analogous traits because of a shared environment or other selective pressure so the, the, the greatest example to think about it is like whales and fish they kind of look the same but it's not because they share the same uh, ancestor, most common ancestor, it's because swimming in the water, if you want to swim in the water, it's actually advantages for you to have a like oh, big yeah. uh, f- uh, fins, fins and, and you know, the shape of the body. Same, same thing with like birds and bats, you know, it's for them in order to fly, to, to fit the, the environmental niche, it was necessary to develop wings. So that's yeah. why, but it's not that, they are they share a most common ancestor. Another example is the divergent evolution. So the evolutionary pattern in which two species gradually become increasingly different. This type of evolution often occurs when close related species diverse to new habitat. And um, the most uh, interesting example, I think you will re- remember this example, but you might not think of it on the top of your head is you know this book on the origin of species written by darwin yeah yeah in this book darwin sorry in this book he talks about uh, a population of birds on the islands of the um i think it was galapagos right yeah Galapagos. yeah yeah so he noticed that on there was the same species of a bird i think it was a uh i don't remember what type of the bird it was but basically uh, the same species of bird, four different islands, and he noticed that the same species had a different phenotypic features to make them suitable to either eat insects or eat seeds or whatever mm. was uh, whatever was available to them on that particular island. So this is the example of divergent evolution. You start yeah. the same, but then you migrate in the different ways. And the last one is the parallel evolution. It occurs when two species evolve independently of each other, maintaining the same level of similarity from a similar ancestral condition. So this was like, this type was kind of hard for me to wrap my head around. I couldn't understand it. But then the best way to learn it is through the examples. So as an example for parallel evolution, they they give uh, a placentals and marsupials. They They both mammals, type of an animal what was the first one per placentals so What's you know placental? placental mammals that have plas- that develop baby oh, inside they have their a placenta. placenta oh yeah, and then and the marsupials they don't they they, they finish off the gestation in the pockets oh yeah 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 in the po- pouches <laughs> yeah in the pouches so uh they this is they are actually an example of parallel evolution where certain placental animals were evolving their own way on the old continent or in the Af- uh, or in the Americas, whereas the marsupials took over the Australia and New Zealand's, right? But we still are able to notice that even though they were like completely separated from each other in terms of the, the way they looked, they looked pretty familiar. And that was like an example of this 
parallel evolution. And the example here they give is European saber-toothed tiger mm. uh, and the South American marsupial saber-toothed. Oh. Uh, yeah, but obviously both of these species are already extinct. By, but okay. when I was googling the images, you could actually you, yeah. you see how similar they are because that particular shape allowed them to hunt maybe similar prey or stuff like that. You know? Yeah, I was just uh, like, what does a tiger with a, a pouch? Where is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, unfortunately, they are all dead. Tiger Another, King would have been all over that. <laughs> <laughs> imagine, imagine having a cyber to tiger. I don't think they're. I don't, I don't think it'd be too hard to make one. Um, another thing was the Tasmanian wolf and the European wolf, actually like very similar. And uh, again, a Tasmanian wolf is dead, uh, is gone extinct in, I think, 1937. And like the last example of this parallel evolution was uh, placental moles and marsupial moles. So they're like, Moles who are placentals and moles who are marsupials, and that's another example of parallel evolution. And I thought, I thought that was that was pretty cool. It's really interesting. But what, I swear, what I suppose it's just because they're on completely mm-hmm. different land masses, so that's how it can they can just evolve independently. Yeah, because you would, I think you can make an argument that if they would be both, for example, this uh, European saber-toothed tiger and the South American marsupial saber-toothed. If they would maybe like to share the same environment or share the same prey, that they might not even have evolved to that point because of too mm-hmm. much competition. And when they had, uh, when they were free to uh, develop and thrive without competition, they were able just to evolve. I don't like saying that they evolved, but like the evolution took place to to make them look the way they do. Perhaps maybe because they didn't have to compete, maybe they were like the apex predator at their time or some or, or something like that. I don't really know that much about um, this extinct form of animals. <clears throat> but I've mentioned a couple of times. Well, I've mentioned uh, uh, like the survival of the fittest, and uh, I think it's important that people understand that it's not like the most athletic or the most dominant, that doesn't mean the survival of the fittest. What the the survival of the fittest means that the way an animal is, is suited the best for the environment or the ecological niche it lives in. That is, it's it's fittest in these terms rather than being jacked up. Um, (laughs) So it depends that like it can vary what if the environment has a lot of... um, predators then it, you would evolve if, if you if you're fast or whatever then yeah. you would definitely have an evolutionary advantage so yeah like uh, like early early mammals in the in the time of dinosaurs it was it, they were they were suited to leave to be small like rodent like creatures because otherwise it would be very hard for them to survive in this reptile uh, driven apex predator environment so you, you know you are the fit the fitness to the environment rather than the fitness we understand it today. Yeah. Um, so the so the fitness actually refers to the ability to survive and reproduce. Um, this dr- this drive to survive and reproduce is a key uh, to what we're gonna talk today. If humans haven't figured out how to deal with certain environmental pressures, we wouldn't have survived till today in the way and the shape we are. So. At the same time, when I say humans figure out, I don't mean that we have actively went out <laughs> there, for example, to the areas of malaria and we were like, okay, 
what sort of evolutionary pathway yeah. should we take to protect ourselves? It doesn't work that that. It's just through random mutations, something makes sense and it sticks around. Because if you, for example, if you have a certain mutation, that makes you, uh, makes you more likely to live longer. If you live longer, that makes you more likely to reproduce and pass on your DNA. Therefore, that mutation would be passed on to your offsprings and, and the circle continues. It's in almost in a way is like... If you like just let COVID go rampant in your country and let anyone dies so or people who had a, an advantage to survive will pass their genes on and then unfavorable people will would not. Yeah, I think that comes under the umbrella of eugenics more than yeah, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. than s- survive. I don't think it's I don't think it's ethically to just let oh, yeah, definitely a disease not. go rampage and see who survives. But also <laughs> also you have to see <laughs> You have to think if the disease is very infectious and and has a high mortality rate, then obviously none of the organisms will be able to adapt fast enough. So there also has to be this this balance, right? You, the, oh, okay. the disease has to be present. The, the disease has to be present within the uh, the environmental niche or whatever, but it can't, and it has to obviously be. Uh, has to cause death and be a certain disadvantage but it can be to the point where it kills off people so quickly that there is not even time for any selection to take place because Mm. because of the speed it happens so um so actually malaria this is what i'm gonna talk about but before i jump into the uh, into the uh the topic of malaria um we, I just want to also mention these things that are um, these pressures, these ev- evolutionary pressures or this selective pressure that that we actually sort of discussed right now, um, that actually drive this survival of the fittest. <clears throat> uh, and the positive selection, for example, is uh, lactose tolerance. I don't know if you know, but majority of mammals they lose the enzyme that allows them to digest milk and other uh, products mm, that contain yeah. lactose. I was watching a video about this actually recently. Yeah, Im- imagine if Irish people lose their <laughs> tolerance to lactose. <laughs> yeah, I think they said in, because um, in Ireland, like, because uh, it's, we have so much grass and so much, like, pr- perfect for cattle that mm. um, it's so common to drink milk here that I think it's, I think 90% Oh, like ninety percent of people have this enzyme. So yeah, a lot. Whereas yeah. compared to other parts of the world where they don't have cattle or have a source of milk, then it's not very necessary. Yeah. So actually, I was reading about it, and it actually they do say that with the uh, um, with once the pe- once people were able to tame hoofed animals that you know um, produce milk and sort. Uh, that's kind of when this uh, buildup of lactose tolerance started, and. Um, Especially when people moved from these, uh, from the valleys of uh, Mesopotamia, you know, this Turkey, Syria region, when they started migrating up towards uh, the north of Europe, that's when it really kicked in, because uh, one of the hypotheses is that when you had milk somewhere in Turkey or down in Mesopotamia or somewhere like somewhere there, if you leave it at eight o'clock in the morning and you come back to it at three or four o'clock you have a you have a yogurt in your yeah, uh, yeah. in your thing and uh, and this is this transition from milk to yogurt already started breaking down so lactose so these people were like 
they were okay to eat that even though they didn't have the lactose tolerance but then if you if you like wake up uh somewhere in the northern northern europe and you you leave milk at eight o'clock you come back at three that's still milk you know because <laughs> it's so cold yeah. it's not gonna ferment as fast so these people like really needed to ramp up the lactose tolerance uh, enzyme because milk is so nutritious and um, and the example of negative selection is in the in the uh in the uh, delta of the ganges river down in india they had uh, actually encountered this pathogenic uh, virus, uh, Vibro cholera, sorry, bacteria, bacteria, Vibro cholera. And over there, people who had the blood type O had the higher risk of dying from that disease. Oh. So when you, <clears throat> when, you, um, when you check the population now in, that, uh, in the Ganges River Delta for the blood group O, you will see that there is virtually non-existing there is no people with blood group o because of this negative selective pressure to put on them uh, so there was a survival of the fittest to get rid of blood group o so these are these kind did, of do, what, okay, mm-hmm. can I, do you have enough time why did they know what are the what i don't know the mechanism for which uh blood That's group o was more susceptible to mm. catching the the, the bacteria because I just think yeah, from I Ireland just point, Ireland's point of view, that because um, the major a lot of people, I think ma- the majority are both group O, but and yet cholera was affected here, but maybe it was yeah not as much pressure put on. Maybe uh, I did actually to be honest with you, I didn't really look that much. Yeah, yeah, no, the, I just was into the blood, blood, blood group down. Next time I should because I give these examples without looking into the mechanism although i do i, I think i explained the lactose tolerance pretty good so let's say it's draw okay but let's move into the malaria because this is the topic that i want to talk about so uh, malaria is caused by a parasite i think you know you know of that it's called it's a it's a parasite of the plasmodium species and it affects hundreds of millions of peoples and kills approximately one million children annually so it's still uh very serious disease, uh, still very much so and endemic in African countries. It's still happening there. And the symptoms of malaria include fever, flu-like symptoms, uh, shaking chills, headaches, and, uh, and of course, anemia and jaundice because uh, the plasmodium parasites, they develop by the, the life cycle involves uh, inv- invade, invading the red blood cells and they, they mature in there and they burst it. <clears throat> so as I said, the malaria parasite must infect the human cells, uh, humans to complete the life cycle. So humans from malaria endemic regions develop specialized adaptation to help them combat these con- conditions. These adaptations involve alteration to red blood cells uh, via so-called hemoglobinopathies enzymopathies, all alterations in expression of cell surface uh, on the red blood cells. So for example, diseases like sickle cells and thalassemia are examples of uh, hemoglobinopathies where a condition changes the morphology of the red blood cell. Uh, Enzymopathies are diseases such as glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency that is also, um, I won't talk much about G6PD because this thing would get way too long. And then the last, and then the last thing is, uh, as I said, the mutation in the Dofi antigen that uh, bring some resistance to malaria as well. 
So with the sickle cell, the most uh, popular mutation is the glutamate to valine substitution in the hemoglobin beta chains, this uh, PGLU6VAL. And <clears throat> normal hemoglobin has two alpha chains and two uh, beta chains, but when you have this mutation, you kind of start producing hemoglobin S, which is, which is not as great as hemoglobin A, which is obviously the preferred one. So once the oxygen is dissociated from the sickle cells that carry this hemoglobin S, they change the, the, the cell itself changes shape. And uh, as these repetitive morphological changes keep on happening, they shorten the red blood cell lifespan and other complications. But I have to mention it that if someone is a carrier of the sickle cell disease, which means that the person didn't inherit two faulty copies of the gene, then that person has built-in mechanism to, um, to help to cope with the malaria infection without necessarily giving you all of these <clears throat> disadvantages of being sickle cell disease. So malaria cells, they don't the malaria parasite, they don't differentiate between healthy and unhealthy cell. So the idea behind it is that malaria would infect just red blood cells. And what they've noticed through the research studies is to see that if you have sickle cell traits, um, the, the, the rate at which the sickle cells are being removed when they infected with the parasite are higher versus the normal cells. So, so this is a this is one I think way they want to explain the, the the full mechanism of resistance is not fully yet known. They think it has to do either with the sickle cells already being picked up by the immune system when they when they keep change when they change the morphology and they stay sickle, they are being easy target for immune system. So if they have the parasite inside, it's kind of and taken straight. out of the circulation, and and therefore overall the parasite load is lower, you know, so <clears throat> so if perhaps even though the normal cells are still infected with the parasite, because you're removing this excess uh, with the sickle cells, maybe the disease is not as, as profound. And this is a kind of universal way of uh, prevention against malaria. So if you are if you are sickle cell, if you if you are a sickle cell heterozygote, you, you more or less protect against uh, all four main types of malaria. Uh, the Plasmodium falciparum being the one that causes most severe disease. And they, uh, they did some uh, evolutionary studies, kind of molecular clock, molecular evolution work. And the research indicates that the malaria causing parasite Plasmodium falciparum has occurred in the human population, has occurred in human population for approximately 100,000 years with the large popu population expansion in the last um, 10,000 years. So once humans became more settled, once we start changing our environment around us, this is actually one of the other theories that once people settled and start creating like this um, uh, water-based stations, you know, when we make <coughs> like lakes and, and, and oh, irrigations right. and stuff like that, uh, that's actually what attracted mosquitoes into oh. these areas and that's how kind of malaria started to infect. increase yeah but this is uh, this is yet another hypothesis out there that yeah, but uh, I, I, how would they know how how much or how um how commonly occurred malaria occurred like hundred thousand years ago you wouldn't have records or anything so it might just appear that it's more now but 
We don't really yeah, know. Well, sure. I don't really know how the um, molecular and evolution clock works, but um, yeah, that's a good question. Maybe for the next topic, I should look into how molecular clock works and kind of a, a, a evolutionary archaeology and stuff like that. And then mm. I'll be able to answer your question. Um, I'm sure they have a reason yeah, for it. Um, <laughs> even if you have this hemoglobin S and yeah. it does give you this benefit of not getting malaria, it's still like you still have a lot of anemia and... Um, well, not if you have... Not if you're heterozygote. So if you're just a carrier, you're you're normally yeah. just healthy. You're not non non symptomic, so yeah. you can just carry on with your you can carry on with your life when you when you have the sickle cell trait. It obviously it was a select as I said it was a it was pressured by evolution to maintain that trait within the population because it had this protective function. So mm -hmm. if it would be if if it having even the sickle cell trait. Uh, deleterious to humans through natural selection it would be eliminated you know yeah. but the evolution maintained it within humans because especially within the african communities when the and endemic malaria where the malaria is endemic it just helps them with fighting the disease unfortunately yeah. when you when both of your parents have sickle cell traits then you you end up with sickle cell disease because it's very, a somal recess it's a lot much more it's well it's a lot more common than a lot yeah, of unfortunately carrying. yeah um <clears throat> similar things are observed with thalassemia uh thalassemia is another uh hemoglobinopathy where your either alpha or beta chains are affected you can have alpha thalassemia or beta thalassemia um but here uh case control studies have shown that both alpha and beta thalassemia provide a high degree of protection against clinical malaria, malaria presenting to hospitals. Two studies that have examined the relationship between mild clinical malaria and thalassemia found evidence for raised rather than reduced incidence of mild malaria in children carrying alpha, alpha thalassemia. So here it's kind of a, with the thalassemia, they're not really that sure as they are with the sickle cells. It's still a lot of uh, for um, discussion going on but they came up with some explanation for perhaps why when you have thalassemia you have a higher rate of malaria one explanation for this is that the mild hemolytic state in alpha thalassemia increases the proportion of younger erythrocytes in circulation that are more susceptible to invasion by malaria parasites so you know your <clears throat> If you have alpha thalassemia, your red blood cell lifespan is not as long. They have to be, they're continuously being deleted and your bone marrow has to put out more not completely mature red cells. And these not completely mature red cells are more susceptible perhaps to get infected by the uh, parasites. This is still consistent with the notions that protection from severe malaria in those carrying thalassemia traits may be secondary to enhance clearance of infected erythrocytes. However, it is also possible that alpha thalassemia protects by predisposing to mild malaria in early life and so enhancing the development of acquired immunity. This sounds to me a little bit yeah. stretched, <laughs> but uh, I, I suppose the judgment is still uh, still out on this so one. That, like, if you get it earlier, does that mean you, you can you build immunity to it? much earlier and that you can't well like according according to the statement that these researchers put out 
Um, but like, do most people um, would they they recover from malaria on the mo- on their own? I think. Well, I think the younger you are, the harder it is to recover, and then it also depends what what type of um, the parasite will infect you. Because if you get if you get caught with the uh, Plasmodium falciparum, that could be that could be a bit tough for you now to get over that one without any medicine. Yeah. But if you get infected with Plasmodium vivax, that's a little bit milder infection. And actually, uh, <clears throat> there is uh, people from Africa where the Plasmodium vivax was very uh, endemic. They actually through thousands of years of evolution, they build up resistance to that particular strain of malaria. So these days, the infect infections with these type of plasmodium are very rare. Um, and it has to do actually with the Doffy antigen. The plasmodium vivax um, actually recognizes um, um, the Doffy antigen as a binding site to, to get access into the red cells. So now, once a mutation happened that eliminated this antigen on the on the surface of the of the red cells, then this parasite couldn't enter and finish the uh, life cycle anymore. So across much of the sub-Saharan Af- Africa, P. Vi- Plasmodium vivax accounts for fewer than five percent of all reported malaria cases, and that's because about ninety-nine percent of um, African uh, people living there have a variant of a gene called DARC, which is the gene for the Daffy antigen, which shuts off particular protein receptor on the surface of the red cells, and that's the part that the parasite needs to gain an entry. So, <clears throat> so f- for this particular uh, plasmodium, humans developed through uh, selective pressure, through the pressure, selective pressure, and uh, an evolutionary kind of a evolutionary driven immunity to that particular species so i don't i I didn't know that because i always thought like okay they just have immunity to malaria but there is like different ways that it happened but like it didn't there wasn't a cost to sacrificing this doffy antigen uh no no i think um i think just people are being it's it's rare in caucasians okay uh, having the FY, FYA neck, FYB neck phenotype on your red blood cells. You, o- you always have one or you the wa- other. Y- one or the other, or both sometimes. <clears throat> I kind of have to, I don't remember. But it's... it's FYA I, is Duffy though. Yeah, it's Duffy, but I don't remember. I think it, it, it's definitely not common for a Caucasian people to have uh, a null phenotype, to uh, just don't have. Uh, but I think, um, I think Ziggy has a null phenotype. I oh. think we, when we did our uh, blood typing in college, I think yeah. he said it that to me. I have to check that with him now. He might not remember, but um, it would be worthy. Ziggy is our... Nigerian friend. Nigerian friend, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I thought, so that's that's about malaria. You have this sickle cell, uh, sickle cell traits that kind of uh, protects you in general from all the types of plasmodium you have this thalassemia thalassemias where the i suppose the judgment is still up in the air and uh, <clears throat> lastly it's the uh, pro- it's the uh, it's the doffy antigen deletions that give protection against particular uh, species of plasmodium the plasmodium vivax 
So yeah, this but is that's, how... isn't that, that's the beauty of evolution then, isn't yeah. it, really? Because yeah. uh, you get all these random mutations that might be meaningless or might have no benefit, but then you come across these random events or random infections mm. and they somehow can have a benefit no, or that's, be beneficial. That's, so, no, that's very true. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting in that that's why we need to be so diverse in our energy normal when we reproduce isn't it <laughs> exactly like it's it's so true i mean if i could finish on uh on another Anything. note that promotes diversity within the population <laughs> it's like um you know the hla uh locate when it's uh this hla gene mht responsible for our immunity against pathogens so you don't want to you don't want to copulate with a person that has exactly the same MHC uh, like you have because then you don't add any diversity uh, to your offsprings because they basically get in what you have. Yeah. Um, so apparently people are attracted to other people with a different uh, uh, HLA alleles. And uh, this this is like we're supposed to work on the pheromone level when we yeah, are supposed to like quote smell. unquote smell each other. So the more diverse we are, the more prone we would be to you know copulating with each other yeah. and that was shown in rodents i think and i think the same thing might might be happening within humans well, i don't know <laughs> i think it's a bit of a step to like you use uh mice where they do smell things where we don't really use our nose like that as much anymore yeah well i yeah well i suppose it's not yeah well if you look at the hla gene it's very much so conserved obviously there are some different differences throughout but uh through the through humans uh great apes monkeys mice all the way down to a shark which mm -hmm. is like evolutionary is so so far away from humans uh there are like these core things within the hla gene that are maintained it's yeah. conserved so i don't know well we could look, um I was just saying, like, you could get set, or I was thinking that you could set up uh, a matchmaking profile based on HLA. <laughs> based on the HLA, yeah. Just, like, be. study and just say, okay, these people were perfect matches. <laughs> I, yeah, well, if, if you look at, like, <laughs> that, set up a reality a TV show. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, where they get them to fill in questionnaires, you're like, <laughs> please get them HLAs done. This is your perfect match based on HLA. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think uh, it, it sounds like a good idea, but it's eugenics. You we can't you can't do that. Hmm. Well, it's interesting how um, yeah, that was a big thing in the 1900s with the eugenics, and that they yeah. thought that um, to it was a good thing to keep intelligent people together, and that's you conserve that intelligence. But actually, that was doing the opposite where you were. Yeah. Well, you they were, even went you're limiting the gene, gene, genetic material, and the genes. So the genetic pool, it's yeah. it's less and less diverse. If you, if you, I suppose this is the whole thing with royalty, and you would see that now. Yeah, the Habsburg chain, the yeah. the what was the British royal family suffering from? Oh, um, hemophilia. Hemophilia. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it just shows that there's no such thing as like pure bloodline, and that's the it's good to have as much diversity, and that's the whole point of evolution yeah. that's the, um, that's but like the isn't point. it weird though now i think as humans 
maybe uh, maybe we don't see it as much now but like evolution isn't really a thing in humans anymore we don't there's no such thing as like as much as survivor of the fitness because we're we're like we're the top of the food chain we're at the top of society that no matter how how bad genetically you can be you're you're just so much modern medicine now that and these people aren't really necessarily like i don't like to use the word but dying off in a way so unless it's like completely incompatible with life generally most people will survive uh, yeah, and there's so, no evolution driving society. So I think we we are stepping away from this concept of survival of the fittest and we entering this kind of a directed evolution where we are mm, the people yeah. who direct a path for our own evolution, you know? And and that's why I got my first tattoo. It is all about transhumanism. That's but what that's, it is. This is the other issue though, isn't it though? Because how do you decide the direction we go in but also increase diversity and, and increase all this keep this uh as op- as pos- as diverse as possible because i mean look in terms of keeping the diversity just don't have children with your cousin yeah but i'm i'm not thinking <laughs> okay thanks for that i wasn't, <laughs> they wouldn't have known that i'm just saying that when when if we do ever come like overcome all these ethical issues mm. for like designer babies or designer mm. what you kid you want how do you like ensure that that the these all these all the anyone that comes after us evolve are the generation after us who maybe are tailored to what you want that some disease comes in and they're all exactly the same and then yeah. it just gets wiped out so it's just it's kind of cr- how do you how do you um or maybe we don't even need to worry about that because we'll have uh, overcome all diseases <laughs> yeah maybe. we can well, we can think in in that ways that we will overcome the diseases and become the masters of the universe or if if we if we will push ourselves to the point that you are saying and then the disease comes in and we don't have a resistance to it or we get wiped out that could be the way of you know just nature correcting itself mm and setting up because there are so many great extinction extinctions throughout the history of earth that gave rise to all of these amazing 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 creatures you know if the dinosaurs were not when when if the dinosaurs did not go extinct like we wouldn't be here theoretically speaking you know because we wouldn't have our ancestors wouldn't have a chance to thrive in the environment that is free of of any large predators so you know if we go extinct who knows what comes after us you know yeah but hopefully we won't go extinct yeah so evolutionary evolution has helped bring about the best podcast ever <laughs> you are skeptically inclined science whoop whoop yes thank you <laughs> so uh yeah so i think anything else do you want to any other conclusions? no right? that's that was that was my wrap on um, adaptations, uh, evolutionary adaptation to infectious diseases. Cool. There's okay. obviously more to talk about, but I think it was enough. Yeah, yeah, that was the whole thing. Um, yeah. yeah, that was really interesting and uh, fascinating. Thank and you, it's something, I think we, again, we get into the deeper like end of it, but yeah, it's still interesting how, uh, how diversity is good in helping with the these infectious diseases yeah so uh for my story i want to talk about covid vaccines in children um i they recently got emergency use approval in 
Canada and I think in America it's still not yet in the EU so I wanted to just kind of discuss it a bit there was a bit of backlash because Joe Rogan was recently talking about it and he said he would never get his kids vaccinated so I just thought was this outrage justified (laughs) or does he have some uh, leg to stand on Mm -hmm. and uh, can I just start by saying again I'm not an expert at all on this (laughs) this is my opinion and I just wanted to try and give a discussion because I think uh, this is what science is about this is what this podcast is about to be skeptical Mm -hmm. so as we know, the rapid development of these highly effective COVID-19s, it's a triumph of science and it really helps represent a way of getting us out of this pandemic and uh, considering we have no, had no immunity to SARS-CoV-2. And um, we've already yeah, developed three, four vaccines have already been approved worldwide and it's been great that how the, the normal clinical trial process has been expedited to like help imp- quick and make sure that these vaccines have got out quickly and uh, people have had coverage so Pfizer now has asked the FDA to allow eligibility for children aged 12 to 15 this is the emergency use authorization Mm -hmm. um, because before this was only available in adults um, because they have done these clinical trials Um, and one of the things I suppose is where people would be kind of skeptical is like for kids the risk of serious uh COVID-19 infection is very low and uh that yeah the likelihood of these severe outcomes aren't the same as in adults and it just kind of what you would wonder is this the appropriate use of emergency use authorization if they they're not really at risk of severe uh death or severe outcomes as it is with adults an emergency use authorization in the u.s it requires an intervention addressing a serious or life-threatening condition uh, for known and for known and potential benefits for the intervention to be balanced against the known and potential harms Uh, and at the time when the emergency use authorizations was approved for adults this was when like 100 million american adults were getting infected uh, and they were at significant risk of severe outcomes, um, and it's as well. I suppose in a way we've we've only since they've been approved and they've been um, out in the public, we've seen that there's been severe adverse events that didn't really wasn't picked up in the trials. Like we've seen that with AstraZeneca and the Janssen, mm. um, and these couldn't be detected in the phase three trials. And um, even though there there was these um potential uh adverse events the out the 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 benefits way way outweighed the risks and we were like okay there is a kind of a slight risk of an adverse event but the the adverse event from covid is so much more like you death long covid etc etc that the the fda and the the eua or sorry the ema they were like this would seem like it's a beneficial to take because the risk of COVID is way more. Um, so the trials for these COVID vaccines in ki- children, they started as young as six months. And it's very hard because they're not, they, when you're doing these trials in kids, you kind of have a lot less ki- um, populations in them because it, it is kind of, you don't want to do such as massive testing as you would with adults. Mm-hmm. So you don't have as much power in a way. So 
the fa- that's always the risk is that you have to do these trials in kids, but you don't want to use as many kids in the trial as you would with adults. So you might increase the risk of missing um, these Some rare adverse good, events. Yeah. yeah. And the these trials as well, they're examining the safety and the immune response. And it's only a secondary outcome is the impact of the incidence on COVID-19 infection. So already with the trial, they're mainly trying to see, oh, is it safe and it doesn't cause any adverse events rather than be like, oh, that we're trying to actually reduce the incidence of COVID in these patients because we already kind of know that COVID doesn't cause that adverse Mm -hmm. events. But I suppose the whole... um, yeah, so the, it's kind of like they, they want to just be able to vaccinate the kids so that they don't have adverse events rather than seeing they already kind of know that, that it's not going to have a series of uh And do you outcomes. know, sorry, which which companies do these trials? Well, it's Pfizer and Moderna Pfizer. are the ones. Moderna, yeah, okay. Yeah, so... um So it is kind of like on you... Are it, the question is, are the the criteria for emergency use authorization, are they being met in kids? Because it doesn't seem to be posing, posing a serious uh, a, a mm-hmm. threat in kids as compared yeah. to adults. Should I just get emergency use or should we not? Um, I think what, what it does should... One of the groups, I will say though for sure that I think... In kids that, uh, uh, I think the kids that would benefit best is those that would be in general, genuinely high risk of serious complications from infection or those who would have to shield normally because their parents or who they live with would be at risk of serious infection. I think they would be the cases that they should be allowed, but I suppose it's just this mass vaccination of all kids. The other thing I wanted to sorry what no no so I was just gonna say that you're probably thinking about this immunocompromised kids or kids with some autoimmune diseases or if they have if within the household there is a person who is compromised or or with autoimmune diseases just in in these kind of situations right yeah Um, but so like the way and this is the main thing I'm kind of coming at from this. more than the whole oh kids don't really need it like i still think it they would be beneficial to give kids the vaccine because i think to limit the spread the only worry i have is that if these kids get it we already know that they don't aren't affected by it if there's certain amount of cases of these rare adverse events or serious adverse events that can be minor enough if this is causes a bit of a controversy in um in the in places where it's uh, allowed, mm-hmm. is it going to cause a huge setback in future vaccination events? Because people are going to be pointing at this as the example, be like, "Oh, well, you were making us vaccinate our kids yeah. against a disease that didn't really cause anything," and then a lot of them caught had these adverse events, and we we don't think that it's what why are you making us do this? Repeat yeah. something like this again, where. And we don't know what's going to cause. And um, that's what I, I, I think. And I, I suppose 
Rare side effects from adult COVID-19 vaccination are unlikely to lead to future vaccine hesitancy, whose public health impact could be comparable to the benefits of adult COVID-19 vaccine program itself. But accelerating mass child vaccination under emergency use authorization presents a different balance of risks and benefits. Possibility that rare adverse events could emerge as the more durable public health legacy of an emergency use authorization for child COVID 19 vaccines is much greater. Uh, and even in this likely scenario that no significant adverse events material, we may still pay a price for the pursuit of emergency use authorizations for COVID 19 vaccines in children. Uh, and it could lead to vaccine hesitancy in the future. Mm. So, should we be more targeting? The children who we are vaccinating rather than just trying to get um vaccinate every kid under that age uh like what what do you think let me see here what you yeah i don't think should we get what do you think should we vaccinate all our kids no I, I, no no okay why <laughs> you look surprised i what yeah that's surprising <laughs> um and was this before i said this put this forward because i do have something to Go against this as well. I'm just after giving you one side of the story. <laughs> I I I think I would be even without listening to your story. I think yeah. I I was leaning towards not all kids should be vaccinated. Okay. Um. It I it seems like less work involved with just getting all the kids on board, vaccinating them. That's it. Problem to decide. Yeah. It is. It seems like significantly more work on the on the part of the government or whoever is organizing these vaccinations. That kind of be careful in selecting which kids are most likely in need of the vaccine. Um, but I think this more tailored approach um, would be better. Mm. I'd like to think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, give give me give me more because I just. Uh, I don't know now. Yeah, well, that's... Okay, so this was published, actually. So this was a kind of... I kind of was using an article. It was in the British Medical Journal. Mm -hmm. um, And it was published by this guy. He's Wesley Pegden. And it was on Twitter. And I think it caused a lot of consternation. Like, I think a lot of people did agree. Um, But I think he didn't give a kind of a good assessment of maybe some aspects of it. Whereas Mm -hmm. there was a guy who replied, and I read this article. His report... And he showed that um, I know the relatively low risk is for kids, um, but they still find that kids are supposed like 1.2% to 3.1% of total hospitalizations um, are kid children. And that uh, the the CDC found that the hospitalization rate was 25 to 4.1%. So it's still kind of, there is hospitalization for kids. Yeah. And there is this... Multi-inflammatory, infla- uh, multi-system inflammatory syndrome. Uh, and in this one study, 33% of children admitted to the hospital needed ICU care because of this multi-system inflammatory syn- syndrome. And that was the consequence of the uh, COVID infection. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This was one of the things at the beginning. And I haven't heard a huge amount. Um, and they said that 58% of these hospitalized children had no underlying medical conditions. This is another argument mm-hmm. against it because you're like, okay, if you're going to give this targeted children approach, what's the what's the 
the target that you should be looking at because these patients didn't really have underlying conditions. The most common underlying condition was obesity. And this is present in this study at 19, 19.3% of American children. So if you're going to have to choose obesity as the case, then that means you're going to have to, in Americans' case, like 13 million people, kids will need to get vaccinated because there are so many kids that are over, overweight. So it then this whole targeted approach is kind of out the window because you're kind of Just doing it for everyone. everyone yeah. um, and the other thing I thought was interesting in his his rebuttal was, oh yeah, so what would, ha- so I think the big thing in Yaman's, the, this Pegden's, in Pegden's mm-hmm. article, not Yaman, he was saying that we should wait. Um, wait and see how this emergency use authorization goes. And oh, sorry. Wait, wait to see how it goes in adults. Uh, give the get, and the trials do the longer period of waiting, uh, and then maybe again give the full authorization because you have a bit lo- more longer time and it's less powered because you don't have as much kids. Um, but then we're gonna have to wait. And yeah, but sorry to interrupt you, but this kind of wait argument is you know you might as well wait until these kids become eighteen and vaccinate them anyway. And wait till then. I mean, like, I just don't think that, oh, let's wait and see. I don't think that it's an argument, really. Okay, so... It's a yeah, lack but, of... Yeah. So, uh, the way Human says... God, the author of this rebuttal uh, mm-hmm. report, he says, uh, if we were to wait for full approval, no child would be vaccinated until before 2022. And despite the reduced risk of hospitalization and death from COVID-19, such a delay poses a risk to the unvaccinated and undervaccinated in the wider community and would ensure that the pandemic and the potential for development of escape variants stays with us much longer. And maybe schools might be less likely to open because teachers would be worried that they'd have a room full of unvaccinated kids. Um, And... The, the his his argument about that it, it, we're not going to be able to detect these rare ad- adverse events. Yeah, so his argument that a full fe- full FDA approval would be substantially more likely to detect rare adverse events than this already stringent regulatory framework of an emergency use authorization, especially considering about two million people. O- 2 million teenagers older than 16 have already been safely vaccinated thus far. So it's unlikely that would we really see um, these more adverse events after uh, the two months, bef- the which where the emergency use comes in compared to the two years. And even the guy on Twitter said that it's unlikely to see major adverse events in the trial and that you most probably w- after two months you will see the most common ones that you don't see wait any longer you wouldn't really see anything um you you generally wouldn't see any more adverse events um but and do you do you know how um how young the child how at the moment the it's 12 to 16 year olds so this is the okay. this is the next that was the one that was uh, approved um, and the, another thing, that was the other one I wanted to talk about, he said, unfortunately, those of us who are familiar with the anti-vaccine movement 
know what is about to happen. Millions of children aged 12 to 15 years will be soon vaccinated against COVID-19 and some improbable, unlikely events are going to be happen to them. The media will write emotionally powerful stories about these store children. Parents of these children will implore others not to make the same mistake I did. The anti-vaccine movement will amplify and distort these tragedies to implicate the vaccine, though of course we must always keep an open mind and consider that the vaccine is responsible. Anti-vaccine activists will claim that the COVID-19 vaccines were rushed and not proper, properly studied. Um, but parents will be frightened. Of course, this is the pattern that will will nearly happen with every vaccine for years before COVID-19 happened. And that um, it's just like, they, they it doesn't matter what kind of vaccine it is. There are always going to be these case studies or cases where people, where there's going to be minor effects and mm-hmm. they're going to be like, they, they, they were just looking for any excuse anyways to be like, oh, well, uh don't don't take the vaccine this is what happened my kid and uh they 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 it doesn't really matter what it would have been they would have been like or oh, use this as a excuse mm. i mean uh, that is am i true. saying that is am i saying that correctly does that make sense yeah that w- w- whatever happens to any vaccine and if there's gonna be adverse mm. reaction people are gonna be like well we've warned you about it and nobody listened to us yeah, and it's like considering that the highly studied fifty-year-old MMR vaccine is still inappropriately blamed for a wide assortment of of symptom or um, diseases, yeah. it is implausible that a few more months of safety data and a different regulatory approval label would meaningly refute anti-vaccine rhetoric and calm anxious patients. Yeah, it's it's funny, right? Because now you kind of use. Uh, like the science gives away to kind of a bureaucracy and PR and management because now you kind of, regardless whether how successful it is, yeah, regardless how successful it is, they want to introduce it in the least inflammatory way. Yeah, yeah. That 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 they, they can. can. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and currently in the US, the vaccine picture for adults is decidedly mixed that their vaccine curve is kind of peaked in mid-April and the vaccine uptake is highly variable from one location to another. Mm. Uh, only 30%, only 33% of the population is fully vaccinated and no state has over 50% of its citizens fully vaccinated. Uh, and 14 states have fully vaccinated numbers less than 30% of their citizens. Even with these low numbers, states are currently turning down more shipments of vaccines as demand wanes. So, uh, if we're not, if they're not going to be able to get the adult population vaccinated, yeah. should we just like target the kids then instead? I suppose it doesn't excuse it, but maybe this would then help push the to the herd immunity number that we need. But like, what? How? How would you ta- like? Can you can you vaccinate a kid without uh, his or her parents? Given a permission? No, I don't think you can. Really. So what? What do they exactly mean by targeting the kid? Do you want to kidnap them, put them into the van, <laughs> vaccinate them, throw them off on the side of the road? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Like, if these parents, I think it's kind of that's a poor, uh, a poor argument to use because 
if you're just forcing the kid or making it a more easier for kids to get vaccinated if the parent doesn't want to get vaccinated she's they're not most likely going to let their kid get vaccinated yeah especially when if they don't think it's real and especially when they think when the symptoms are so uh, especially when they know better um yeah see that's but yeah, we we many scientists doubt that the US will achieve the vaccine numbers needed for herd immunity. Given this, every opportunity to immunize a person against COVID-19 is an opportunity to protect individuals, prevent outbreaks and exponential uh spread of the of the virus. So where yeah. where do you stand on the kids vaccination? Do you think they all should be vaccinated one after the other or on how how would you would you make it mandatory? Like, for example, if you want no. to attend the school, you have to be vaccinated. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't know. It's very tough because... Um, why is it that a ki- kids who want to go back to school, who want to go back to the in-house, in-school learning, Yeah. why is it that they're going to have to... If other kids in the class from other parents don't want to get them vaccinated um, and the school can't enforce vaccination then and they'd be like well we can't open because there's still too much of a risk with these kids these kids who did get vaccinated are getting at a loss because other kids aren't but at the same time it's like you have to respect that they don't their parents don't want to get them to get vaccinated um for for their yeah, own but this reasons. is kind of this is this is gonna be like you know and this you you you, you it means the same thing if you say, oh, you have to be tolerant to intolerance. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think it is a nice idealistic thinking, but at some point, uh, I mean, that's why we have governments, so they can take these hard decisions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, uh, properly advised, but... Yeah. I, yeah what, I, you gonna, I, what, what you gonna do? Yeah, yeah. Well, before one other, this is the final point he made, and it's mm-hmm. kind of similar to what you were saying. Fundamentally, the decision to vaccinate children is an all-or-nothing decision. There is no way to gently ease into a vaccine campaign in the middle of a pandemic. Either millions of kids will be vaccinated over a short term time frame, or they won't. Uh, and given the obesity rates in America and I suppose in other parts of the world, even vaccinating children with a risk factor for severe outcome as proposed would potentially mean that millions of kids will be vaccinated in a short time and would reduce their risk of some kind of um, COVID-related severe outcome. Um, So the risk of this adverse event is so low, we don't know it, uh, and we might potentially pause this whole huge, hugely beneficial uh, vaccination drive just because we're not sure about a very rare, severe adverse event. And I still think it is true that these people who, uh, if there is an adverse event or because of the vaccine, they will most probably be like, oh, uh, I, w- I wouldn't get, they wouldn't get their kid vaccinated anyways. I don't think it, they, they, this like really thorough I'd like it is very thorough testing they do already with emergency use mm-hmm. authorization um but I think it really wouldn't make a diff- huge difference what what the outcomes are either way that they they would be they wouldn't be happy with the how the vaccine and vaccinating their kids anyways with this vaccine it's just 
I still think it is kind of tough because the, the like 90% of kids don't have any severe outcome. Yeah. If we have all our adults vaccinated, uh, then the risk of them spreading, the transmission risk is negated because they're not going to spread it. If you did spread it, the person should have, like in all the trials so far, it's shown that your risk of hospitalization is basically very, like very low. So then what are we is it what is this that argument good enough that to say oh the transmit you because you want to stop transmission but these people mm. should be have enough immunity built up so i i i think it's it's kind of a tricky one and uh i don't think it's very fair i just think the whole way with joe rogan where they all were like completely outraged and i'm like he he i think having the discussion about it it should be allowed and um, what episode was it? Do you know? I don't know what it was. Actually, right, it doesn't matter. Um, well, look, you can. I mean, the obe- obesity is a is a risk factor, and we know it about it. So you know that could be an angle angle that I can use. You know that your child is in the in the higher risk group, and you know. But do you think you can- it should be targeted? You still think it should be. Because yeah. at that stage, I'm like, why wouldn't you just do it at the mall? Why would why? And I think you have it is an all or nothing. I really so think c- coming into it, I I didn't know about it, the trials that the trials are being done on the age on the yeah they are being done groups. yeah and so before that I yeah I was leaning towards like the selective uh, or tailored vaccination, but that was that was me thinking that there's the trials were only done on the 16 plus or 18 plus and you kind of and now mm. with the children you kind of risking it without having the data yeah. uh, from kids being vaccinated right but now these these trials are happening and, oh, and there's, you, you, there's a lot of ta- protocols yeah. in place that you, you exactly you've, i was just gonna mention that you you you've said that there is so many kind of uh checks to make sure that everything is and they lower the number of participants because they are kids right yeah they have to um, right they have to so yeah maybe now i'm i'm switching sides maybe now mm, i'm thinking wow. that it actually i managed to convince you makes sense but the one vaccine. thing i will say is if something comes out about these vaccines covid19 vaccines in kids in america or canada it's it's over i really That's think it, yeah. there's no coming back from it because uh, especially when the fact that kids are so unlikely to be affected by it, parents are already looking for a reason. I think not to have to do it with their kids. So, I think, I <laughs> think it know- is. I think it is, and I'm, and that's why I'm kind of a bit worried. Though, like, could could this result in bad science, and that people are going to downplay symptoms just so that there is an hysteria cause? But I suppose. That's uh, conspiratorial, maybe. <laughs> I don't really. You know, I feel. I have nothing to back that up. I think the problem is okay if if you're an adult and you get a vaccine and you have the adverse reaction, you kind of whether you're an easily influenced person or not, you made that decision by yourself most of the times, right? But and I suppose and the other thing is you know that you adults are have a much higher risk, especially with age. Yeah, whereas the kid. 12 to 16 years old you're nowhere near you think you're you know something but you don't really know anything speaking from experience <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. 
same experience. So you kind it it's the the adult or the uh, the legal guardian or the parent takes the takes the heat, right? If something if something goes goes wrong. Hmm. But okay, but this is this is now I'm kind of talking about you know who's gonna who's going to be to blame if something goes wrong. So. It's not a straightforward question. No, it's, it's just, not. It's a very I thought, hard. I thought it's gonna be easy for me, and I thought I was gonna be like, bam, bam, bam. This is this yeah. is what I think, and this is what it is. But yeah, I've I've already changed my mind. So <laughs> <laughs> let us know. Actually, I'd be curious if you have people have opinions. I'd love to hear. Um, mm. And I think overall, I actually think they should get it because I think the science behind it is very good. They've done the proper procedures and i think uh if, if everything like as safe as they're reporting i think there's no reason why you shouldn't get that get us to that herd number immunity number and, and hopefully then we with we, the risk of the covid just kind of dies out within the within the community and yeah and i, I, I just hope to god that the, it is there's no major issues in that it's very minimal I'm, I'm sure there will i'm sure there will be something reported like kids when when they get it but i hope it's just minimal we don't see any um serious events and i mean i i low-key thought that like the astrazeneca is gonna be pulled off when the clots started I, I yeah like it wasn't even whether the clots are related or not related i was saying if they if they start drawing this associations i actually thought that astrazeneca is gonna be pulled off and we will not be using it as a as a, as a vaccine anymore obviously i was wrong it's mm. still on it's still on the market so and now i think we will never be a hundred percent sure that any medication cannot have any adverse effect yeah. i think there is always there is there is always this kind of a this gray area so we that, always have to accept that I think so. I think this. I think this could be inherent because of the way mm, science works is, and it doesn't work on the basis of absolutes. It works on the basis of like you know confidence of in confidence intervals that and you know, uh, 95% uh, support, and, supporting evidence like and proof. supporting evidence. So you know, uh, so there is always going to be a chance of something going wrong. So it, I think we should accept it that there is always a risk of something going wrong with, you know, within the biological systems that we mm. are and we operate. I suppose they would, people would say then, why would you rather increase this risk instead of just not getting the vaccine in, for kids, for children? So, be, but like, but the, but, but the thing is, it's because of the risk is so minimal because we, put so much work and effort into making sure that it's as safe as it can be under given certain circumstances uh, circumstances that we have developed this vaccine you know and and it's as safe as it can be uh pro given all of the tests we have performed and all the kind of scenarios we come up with like you know we made sure that in the general population it is as safe as it can get yeah and then you know you're always gonna have a couple of people that want to go against the stream, and they're gonna pop up with the adverse reactions. And yeah, but it's it's meant to happen because without these adverse reactions, we wouldn't know they. If the, no, if the adverse reactions wouldn't be reported, then we wouldn't know they exist, right? Yeah, and I still think when you're doing a vaccination, 
of a whole population. If you were even vaccinating them with water, people are going to have reactions. Like it just happens. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah, but know. we shouldn't. In the same time, I don't think we should like belittle the no, no, the you know, um, importance of these adverse reactions on the individual level. You know, because. I'm sure it's 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 hard for people like you know you you're supposed to get better but now you're suffering and you know it's not that we belittle the, these like they are they are awful and <clears throat> I suppose that the more we work on these vaccines the better we get at at developing them and at some point at some point there will be like they'll be flawless but not 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 yeah. just yet yeah yeah but let's let's line up them kids and let's vaccinate them <laughs> yeah yeah so we'll see we'll I'll be uh, hopefully. We will we will monitor and see how this goes. I wonder will we have to talk about this again in the future? I am curious. I'd be um, very I'd be very angry if kids gonna if kids receive the vaccine before me. <laughs> then I'll be like, no, don't vaccinate them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, that was so that was what I wanted to say and um kinda get the discussion going. Yeah. So if you have any more to add on it, let us know on uh skeptically inclined at gmail.com and on our instagram skeptically inclined and twitter at skeptically i uh we love your feedback if you uh want to let us know anything yeah um yeah so was uh that was today's episode sorry <laughs> so now there for a bit um <laughs> It's been a late, long evening. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, today what we talked about, we talked about, um, you talked about the this rare, rare inflammation in the spinal cord due to the yeah. COVID-19 and then and evolutionary adaptation to infectious diseases. Yeah, and I'd mentioned about the increased numbers of deaths actually from COVID, not the under-reporting, but over, sorry, yeah. under-reporting, not over-reporting. And the... Uh, vaccine debate of whether kids should be yeah vaccinated for COVID-19 or not mm. um and yeah again I I'm not an expert I this is my opinion and I, as well actually minus mentioned pediatricians do approve it as well so again another reason why it should be it mightn't be an issue but like yeah everyone can have their opinion and I respect I respect everyone's what maybe not know? I respect everyone's opinion but uh, <laughs> I I people are free to do what they want and uh, just hopefully they get the news from the right source um yeah okay. all right <laughs> great conclusion there Damn, uh you yeah it hard. yeah so yeah that was our today's episode i hope you enjoyed it um we'll be back again hopefully we might be able to get a another guest or two on yeah uh soon any final comments tom um, no, nothing from me. Just um, stay skeptical, guys, as always, and I'll catch you on the next one. Bye. Bye.